Hello, I'm Edwina Johnson, Director of Byron Writers Festival. You're listening to the podcast Midnight's Children, Contemporary Indian Literature, featuring Kunal Basu, Roana Gonzalez, Vayu Naidu and Venkat Shyam, in conversation with Wendy Weir, recorded live at the 2017 Byron Writers Festival. For more information about the festival, please visit byronwritersfestival.com. Thank you very much, Wendy, our chair. Welcome, everyone, to this session on contemporary Indian literature. Um, It's my enormous pleasure to introduce your panellists today. On my left, we have Kunal Basu. Is that my left? Yes, I'm terrible with that. Then we have Vayu Naidu, Venkat Shayam, and Rowana Gunsalves. We also have someone on my right who isn't here, um, and many of you will be aware that the Byron Writers Festival supports PEN, Poets, Poets, Essayists and Novelists, and this empty chair is a symbol of someone who can't be with us today. So PEN was founded in 1921 to act as a powerful voice on behalf of writers harassed, imprisoned and sometimes killed for their views. This empty empty chair on stage is a symbol adopted by PEN International to represent the writers who cannot be with us because they are imprisoned for their writing. So today the chair represents blogger and government critic May Nam, who was convicted in June this year. May Nam has been detained since her arrest in October. Last year was convicted of conducting propaganda against the Socialist Republic of Vietnam and sentenced to 10 years in prison. Penn International believes that May Nam is being targeted for peacefully exercising her right to freedom of expression. And freedom of expression is certainly one of the central premises on which the Australian Council of the Arts functions, our sponsor for this session, and, and where, I, where I work. Um, three of the guests here today are actually the result of... I've been lucky enough to take a delegation of Australian publishers and festival directors to India for the last three years. We uh, build connections across Indian and Australian publishing, and Edwina Johnson, the fearless leader of this festival, was one of our delegates in January this year, and as a result... We we have Kunal Vayu and Venkat with us today um, because she saw all of them in different circumstances and simply had to bring them to Byron. So when I saw this session was going to be one that I was chairing, I was simultaneously delighted to be reunited with some wonderful people who I'd met earlier in the year and slightly terrified because I think, Kunal, it was you who said yesterday, there is no Indian contemporary literature, is there? <laughs> Not whatsoever. It's, uh, it's what you call the yellow submarine. <laughs> Or the concept of Asia, perhaps. So, um, India, 22 officially recognised languages, a history of over 3,000 years in written literature, one of the most complex literary histories in the world. Um, So many gods, so many creeds, so many people, so many traditions. So, this is kind of like a a sort of a sampler, if you like. And I think the, the guests that we have today, we have a historical and contemporary novelist and academic. We have a performance storyteller and novelist and academic as well. We have an extraordinary visual artist who has just produced his first graphic autobiography. And we have an Indian Australian who's written a wonderful book from the migrant perspective in Australia. So it's a it's a broad and diverse terrain that we'll be travelling today. Um, Venkat Shyam is a renowned Gond artist and the author of Finding My Way. Venkat, you have my copy of that. Can you wave that yeah. at the audience? Because mm-hmm. this is a truly extraordinary mm-hmm. book. Um, with Venkat's art and a collaborated with his publisher, Essanand, and we'll talk about that more in a bit. Um, Vayu Naidu is a novelist and performance storyteller of the oral traditions. Her novel, Sita's Ascent, was nominated for the Commonwealth Book Award, and her latest work is the very beautiful The Sari of Surya Vilas. Kunal Basu is the author of many works, including his historical novels The Opium Clerk, The Miniaturists, Racists, The Yellow, Emperor, Yellow Emperor's Cure, and most recently his contemporary novel Calcutta. He's also written a collection of short stories, The Japanese Wife, um, the title story of which has been made into a film. And Rowana Gonsalves came to Australia as an international student. How long ago was that, Rowana? Oh, that was like in a different lifetime, <laughs> 19 years ago so. 19 years ago. Mm. She's a recipient of the Prime Minister's Australia-Asia Endeavour Award and the author of The Permanent Resident, which is a collection of 16 short stories that chronicle um, the Indian migrant experience here. So Venkat, let's start with you. Um, I have a, a slight fangirl confession to make. I, um, I was 
at the Asia-Pacific Triennial of Contemporary Art. Some of you may have been there most recently at the Queensland Art Gallery in 2015. So this is an art exhibition. It happens every three years. It specialises in Asian art and it's really one of the big platforms for, for that work, particularly in this region. And Venkat had a couple of pieces there. One of them was an extraordinary work that was... It was about three storeys high, wasn't it, Venkat? A very large-scale mural called The Tree of Life. And I spent a long time looking at that at that work, um, absolutely entranced by it. And then an Indian publisher friend of me of mine pressed that advanced copy of this book in my hands and I realised it was it was Venkat and I was so, so delighted to have that book. And then a couple of months later I find myself in India going to one of my favourite publishers. Um, this publisher is a really socially engaged publisher. They publish a lot of work about caste from an anti-caste perspective. And while we were busily introducing all the Australians to the publisher of that house, there was a quiet man standing to one side. And then I had this moment where I thought, oh, my goodness, that's Venkat himself. <laughs> so <laughs> I was, um, he collaborated with his publisher on this book, Finding My Way. Um, and Venkat, I wanted to, to tell, me, tell me a bit about... You belong to a tribal community, the Gon community, which is one of the yeah. largest Indigenous communities in India spread across a number of states. Can you talk a little bit about your community and, and what it means to be a Gond artist? Uh, actually, the, we have oral tradition. And, uh, you know, um, I'll show you something. Actually, first, uh, here uh, I depict something. Unfortunately, we don't have AV in yeah. this room, but you should. I can hear. If you, you can, can see, see the yeah. this music instrument, it's called bana, actually. And this is the oral traditions come from a tradition, and uh, one of them. Uh, uh, there's a one song I would like to song. Uh, it's first, and then I'll tell the story about my tradition and uh, my uh, community. Ehe hai hai bhaiya Gharma ke pothi la gharma bhisar ke ayao Kagahun karame gati la He bhagwan kagahun karame gati la नौ मन के तुर काया जर गए मिट्टी भय शरीर गा खोजत खोजत हो गए मोला बड़ा धोखा गा कर्मा के पोथीला घरमा भी सर के आयो कागा हूँ करा में गतीला यह तन के तघमंचन कर बे मन होत है बड़ा अधीरा गा कर्मा के पोथीला घरमा भी सर के आयों कागा हूँ करा में गतीला खावत के मैं थारी दायों पीवत के मैं लोटा गा खोजत खोजत हो गए मोला धोखा बड़ा हो गए गा कर्मा के पोथीला घरमा भी सर के आयों कागाहूं करा में गतीला हे भगवान कागाहूं करा में गतीला so I think Rwana can be explained about it I'm just going to read the English translation which is in the book it's translated by S Anand in collaboration with Venkat so this is what Venkat just sang I left the book of karma behind, but the rhythm of life isn't hard to find. I forgot the book of the wise, so let me now just improvise. Your luminous body will turn to dust, this house of straw will fall to a gust. Don't gloat and thump your silly chest, still your mind, don't be restless. I shared my plate of food with you. I shared my glass of wine with you. I searched for love, sought God in you. 
I never thought you'd be so untrue. So, uh, these kind of tradition, thank you, thank you so much. These kind of tradition which is I am following uh, and uh, providing through this book and uh, introducing also that tradition. Actually, you know, we have uh, the strong tradition is called uh, Laved, oral tradition. We call Laved. Ved is, Veda is different, but Laved. Laved is that means that in your tongue. So, Laved. It's, it's passing by long, long, long generation. And uh, I'm following that tradition. And through that tradition, I'm doing painting also. Because that's in, you know, in, in word, but I'm presenting through that uh, words, through the painting. So both are different medium. Anyway, um, we call actually, uh, uh, we have, uh, you know, uh, in, in our village, in our uh, area, or in our tradition, uh, it's deep and strong history behind uh, our generation. And uh, of course, because first I would say uh, the, there's a two uh, land, Gondwana and Laurasia. So we are part of that land. And after dividation, we just divided. And uh, uh, we have also one river called Narmada. Uh, it's a very old river. Uh, and uh, there's a two mountain called Michael and Satpura. It's, uh, they are older than Himalaya and this story coming from that area and they uh, our elder and my uh, grandfather grand families they tell the story about uh, uh, that uh, reason uh, and our uh, community also so I'm following that tradition through this way I'm not saying uh, because I don't have, uh, you know, uh, the power or the words for them to deliver everything. But little bit what I have knowledge, I just submit in the book because as Anand wrote through that, uh, his word. And uh, because I am, you know, I don't have uh, words. I can paint better, but I can't write better. And it's an interesting collaboration, isn't it, Venkat? Because Essanand, who was your publisher, um, it really is a mutual piece of work, isn't it? It's, it's not just your art and, and his words. It's a collaborative artwork that you two have made in unison. And in, there's a beautiful line in the book where he, you say, I scripted him while he was scripting me. Yeah, actually, you know, the, the, what happened in my life, uh, I was sharing with uh, Kunalji. Actually, uh, Kunalji know me well t from last, I think, uh, 10 years, more than 10 years. Kunal, you have some of Venkat's work, don't you? <laughs> yeah. I do. Yeah. I do yeah. Uh, so, actually, you know, uh, when I was participating in the exhibition and going to deliver uh, something, uh, you know, uh, exposing myself, uh, like you were say, saying the selfie thing. So how I can say myself, who I am? And many times in India, uh, there's a, actually four reasons, uh, you know, north, south, east, west. And if you have name and the people can understand, okay, you from south, you from north, you from east, you from uh, southern. So people think about me because my name belongs to south part of India. Venkat, that means south not from Central India. So always they think, oh, you're not looking like it's gone. You're not, because you're you well settled and uh, you wearing well cloth and shoes and everything. And gone, we seen gone, they're looking like, you know, the half cloth they're wearing uh, just like uh, necker. So uh, then I said, should I remove the cloth and stand behind you? with Necker. You know, it's happened in Delhi. So that kind of pain I had and I was thinking how can I explain myself to them? Because I am belonging that community and uh, they have really strong, uh, you know, uh, um, culture, rich culture. They, they have their own script, writing, language and many things. 
but people they don't know who i am and uh, where i you know what is my custom so that that's why i did that book because something because i can't write properly so i help uh, i take help with s anand i met uh, s anand so s anand uh, was telling me venkat kaise karke kitab likhenge how to write the book that was the first question with s anand for me to wrote this book and uh, you know uh, he was very surprised venkat i can't write because i don't know you so uh, can you take to me to your home because he is brahman and he don't know about me so mm. you know he was also surprised to uh, know me because he don't know anything so uh, that's why it's um it's an, <laughs> it's an extraordinary book the artwork is is extraordinary mm. and the words are amazing too and for those of you who don't know much about venkat you know he he has had a life as as a rickshaw puller in delhi is one of the first images mm. in the book which yeah. is you know one of the most difficult jobs in the world one would say and then you know has equally um had a, a really meaningful career and traversed the international art world so those extremes are beautifully captured in the book and the journey of, of finding oneself and expressing oneself in in the way that one wants to Vayu um, Venkat talked about the oral traditions and there's something which are, are a really strong influence in your work as well aren't they yeah, um, I think there's a wonderful sort of democracy of can you all hear Vayu can you hear me yeah. okay it's bad for an oral storyteller now can you hear me Uh, I just had a big birthday so I know I've dropped an octave as well so I'll keep it husky okay can you hear me good can you hear me good okay um yes oral tradition is very much about uh, a call response and with uh, venkat who yes has a very south indian name i'm i'm from the south it's great because uh, wendy has accidentally assembled north south east center <laughs> oh by design i'm sure yeah, yeah. <laughs> a divine plan no doubt um so the 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 oral tradition that venkat is talking about in terms of a visual art um i know in english you have these specifications oral apart from dentist dental hygiene is only the spoken word no it's a very visual imagination and um the, the there's a word um in um i'm assuming it's in sanskrit but i'm sure it came from one of the regional languages it's called darshan or darsana which literally means a vision it doesn't have to be anything vis- uh, uh, you know mystical but it is a deep visual imagination and that is something that um somebody who paints pictures is also telling stories of those visual images and it's also about a very deep dream time that um oral storytellers have and those who are more familiar maybe with words are also creating that darshan or are enabled by a darshan or a visual imagination to speak the text in fact um out of the two um indian or i should say hindu epics and i'm not being religious here but cultural it uh, the mahabharata actually um has this character called sanjaya who's talking about um uh, who's reporting what's happening on the battlefield between two opposing uh, the, the battle between two opposing um cousins of the same family and they are being protected by a blind king and obviously the blind king cannot see what's happening so he has this reporter sanjaya and he says tell me what's going on so the word that's used in this ancient text which is um you know good 15 uh, written around uh 1500 or it was enacted 1500 BC and then later on is written in verse by one of our sage poets called Vyasa the word that's given is doordarshan and the broadcasting corporation of india 
decided to call television Doordarshan. So there's always a sense of the pastness and the ancientness which continually uh, inhabits our contemporary existence in India. So as part of oral tradition, I belong to one, or I was trained in a tradition that Venkat comes from, although I was not born into it. And I think for me, that has just been a gift. I came from a very urban, metropolitan kind of family, very cosmopolitan, um, English educated. Um, somehow the convents wouldn't accept me for too long for possibly this reason of being Sufi, yogi, whatever. Uh, I didn't do drugs, but what I really got very high on was visual imagination. And from that, um, as a composer of oral stories, I, I recite what I see. You um, have been credited with coining the term performance storytelling, haven't you? Can you tell us a little bit about that? In uh, Indic traditions, we have across India with the 22 languages, 1500 dialects, we have different performance oral traditions. And um, when we say performance, in Indic and African, and I'm assuming uh, indigenous traditions, you don't, you integrate movement, you integrate um, text or narrative, and it is composed in the moment. It is the chemistry of that time. And I think the black jazz singers really understand that. It's blues and it's bhakti, it's in the moment. It may be a known story, it may be a known song, but it's that chemistry and interaction between people, the moment, the time. In uh, Bangla, my, my one of my mentors teaching me storytelling, he'd always say, Kaal, Sthan, and Patra. Think of your the time in your life, the place where you are, and um, you are this vessel. So you've got to you know, respond to the chemistry of the place, the people, and the time, and then the story will come forward. And the story's, the story's always made anew, isn't it? Um, because you, in, the, in the act of performing it, you, you revision or you reimagine it in some ways. And your novel, Sita's Ascent, is a, a reimagining of, of a great Indian epic poem, isn't it? Yeah. The, potentially exactly. one um, of the biggest. It's, it's, uh, it, it's an epic poem called Ramayana. It's the other epic. And, of course, it's the adventures of um, a wonderful hero and uh, it's an epic that has made head roll, heads roll in India, uh, a lot of bloodbaths, uh, gives birth to fundamentalism. I don't take that side of it, obviously, because I have very strong opinions on that. Um, but it's also, interestingly, I think the first linear narrative of a novel right. in, in terms of world epics. And um, when I used to perform this two and a half hour piece with integrated with music and movement in English, transposing it from different Indian languages to a culture that is not familiar with the context and the resonances within the epic. So even that, you're editing, you're composing your English, you're transposing it to touch a certain concept of an Indian aesthetic which is called rasa, which has got quite a hip English translation, means juice. So it's the juice or the flavors of the emotions of, in, well, I'm, I'm speaking from the heart as an Indian, but I'm speaking in English, which is a language not necessarily my own, but I have owned it. Um, Sita's ascent actually emerged from um, a telling of this epic, Ramayana, when I used to actually see Sita standing in the wings, saying, it's all very well, you're telling the story of this great guy who's my husband, but I think you've got to talk about me. And interestingly, um, I, you, and one never knows, and I think Venkat Kunal and Rana and I would share this, it, you never know what drops in your lap. You, you may be thinking of something and that book comes your way. You may be not even thinking about it and something emerges. And so this whole story of Sita's ascent came. It's reimagined, but it's also fictionalized. It's about uh, Sita, who's the wife of Rama and her second exile. 
And uh, basically what's interesting in the oral tradition and a device I've taken from the oral into the written is that the storyteller always stands within the performance of the storyteller with the other characters. And I've used that device in the writing of the fiction because here the character questions the writer, saying, did you really imagine this destiny for me? And I'm going to now make you listen to my story. Okay, so it takes off uh, on that kind of direction. And um, it's there in the bookshop. <laughs> mm. And from a from a non from a linear narrative, your your latest novel, um, the Sari of Surya Villas, is decidedly not linear. It's a it's a book of two parts. Can you talk a little bit about that and perhaps give us a taste of it in a reading? Okay. Um, yeah. The 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 Sari of Surya Villas is. I don't know if I'm I'm into branding of historical fiction, but. Uh, maybe that's a convenient one. It's set in a historical time between 1842 and 1916. Bless you. No, don't be. No, no. This is the storyteller and all of us. We empathize. Okay. <laughs> we do not wish to embarrass. We empathize. Um, so this uh, novel is, um, if I speak about it, because this is linear time now, it's... Um, about the Indian First War of Independence, or known as the Mutiny in the Time of Empire. And it's about uh, a weaving village in the south of India. And um, not much is talked about the impact of that War of Independence throughout India, and especially on weaving villages in the south. Bengal and the south of India were actually the, the principal weavers. Bengal, particularly for the Mughals, and the South was creating its own sort of silks for its uh, rituals and uh, temple worship, and of course, some for export. At a particular time, what inspired, uh, when I was looking through various historical monuments, places, at a particular time um, in London during Horace Walpole's time, um, the divan or the settee, the ebony settee had come into fashion and they needed silk woven coverings for it. And um, it sort of triggered a thing in me and I started reading about the merchant warriors from the south. And these were actually silk weavers and traders who then suddenly, for purpose of uh, merchandise, changed the, the, the way the sari was woven or the kind of silk that was woven to export it. That's one part of history. But uh, I was triggered by this idea that a sari for an Indian woman, I think all over India, but particularly in the South, for an, uh, a, a girl getting married, it's always her mother's side of the family who gives the sari, which takes her into her new household as the married woman. In Punjab and parts of North India, once a girl is engaged, all the clothes, everything are given by the bridegroom's side and the girl has to wear those clothes. And when she goes into that home, she never really looks back. For a South Indian girl, she will keep returning home and I think that's true of Bengali daughters as well. So I was very interested that here is something that is handed by a matrilineal line woven by uh, a weaver in a village in 1862. And what it means to him uh, when this young woman is taken away to England, you have to read the book, why? Um, she becomes a governess, she's adopted and she's teaching in a sort of uh, teaching the children as she's a kind of a governess in a, uh, in a wealthy home. But at one particular moment, she's remembering what this lord in the grace hall when this settee is uncovered and this silk that comes out suddenly triggers a memory for her and she remembers her father, a man called Virapan. And she says, what flashed vividly in my mind were Virapan's fingers, his knuckles the size of sambar shallots while creating the letters of my name in a pattern of yellow thread. 
It was his code of writing a history through symbols of the way a people believed in time and space. The Rudraksh for meditative auspiciousness, the peacock for weddings, the goddess Amman for courage to face intruders. His greatest fear when I look back now must have been the rise of merchant supremacy displacing the role of art and the artisan. Could the spirit that turned the soil and grew the bark, that fed the silkworm, that spun the thread, that dyed the yarn, that wove the cloth from the colors of the sunrise to the sunset, with all creatures telling their story of how the earth breathes and dies and lives again, be taught or bought by an order? Who would be left to spin the stories about Amman, the feminine force, time after time, in new ways? It was a tradition he did not want obliterated, and he was willing to give his life for it. I'm going to move to a very uh, short section of how this power of, it's a, it's a metaphor for language, the oral tradition, how you weave, how you paint, how you see, how you tell. And when we move into the 19th century, for a lot of Indian women were not educated but they would hear oral texts or the recitations of the epics in their particular languages, wherever they were. But the particular family I'm dealing with who come to be the owners of the sari, which gets lost, which is the great mystery you have to buy this book for to unravel. Um, the meaning for young widows, even in an aristocratic family, to actually try and grasp and try and learn English because it was a language of power. It was a language of empire. It was a language of men who were in power, even in their own household. So I'm just going to read you a, a very small snippet. Please laugh with me and not at me. Um, It's called attainment, and you'll understand how Indians use this word. April was the month of prickly heat. It was known as Katri, the scissor season, as it shredded every human endeavor before it could reach completion. Rich or poor, the human body was paralyzed by the lassitude of this dreaded season's burning heat and high humidity. The thick gold necklaces worn by married women became ropes of fire, and their skin puckered into weeping blisters. It was not uncommon to see men, women, and children plastering their bodies with talcum powder and turmeric paste, looking like ashen ascetics or actors in a mask, depending on the color of their skin. Gauri, who was one of the widowed uh, sisters, she was widowed by 14, it was one of the child marriage things, and she's desperate to learn how to read. So she's sitting at the table up in the library, and she was trying to read the news. Early this year, there were signs in literary circles that India would have its first Nobel laureate for literature in English. The year is 1912. These developments were considered extraordinary by foreigners and educated Indians. Shock was rippling through the world. Gauri was reading the headlines of the Evening Telegraph. Three years ago, the world's mercantile masterpiece made in Britain, the Titanic, had hit an iceberg, causing the death of 1,514 men, women, and children aboard. <laughs> Gauri was trying to understand the scale of the world from an artist's image of the Titanic's disaster that had been printed on the front page. The world's largest ocean liner was shown bow-end in the waves with the other part almost in the air, a top-heavy toy boat nose-diving in a bath. Gauri was wondering whether she might use the word Titanic to illustrate a particular event that had occurred in the women's apartments. It had happened that morning. Alar Melu, who's this 10, 12-year-old girl now, who's their niece, Alarmelu summoned Ruku, the other aunt, and Gauri to examine the sticky patch of blood staining her white bedsheet. 
Alarmelu saw her aunt's faces contort in horror, disgust, delight, compassion, even secrecy, as they announced their verdict. Alarmelu had commenced menstruation. Ruku, her aunt, chucked Alarmelu under the chin and with a girlish grin exposing, exposing all her beetle-stained teeth said, Alarmelu, you are not a little girl or a big girl anymore. You are a woman now. Gauri had that adjudicator at an elocution context look on her face. When she spoke, Alarmelu couldn't help feeling that it sounded like an announcement her aunt would read from the Madras standard. Alarmelu Mangatai of Surya Bilas, in this 15th year of your life, you are no longer a little girl. You are more than a big girl. In fact, you are now a fully functioning woman. You have attained puberty. Within that hour, Alarmelu overheard the two sisters chorus to her father, who had just completed his prayers in the dining room. Your daughter is a woman now. She has attained puberty. Thank you, Vayu. Um, it, is, it is a truly extraordinary book, and, um, and I love the, the metaphorics of the thread and the thread of the story and the, thread and, and the thread in the sari and what it means to actually weave insurrection into a garment. But you'll need to read the book, as Vayu has entreated you to find out more about that. Kunal, I'd like to move to you. You have been many things. You have been a painter, an actor, an academic, a writer. You have a dual life of being a professor of business at Oxford, and yet you write a, a great many historical novels and a contemporary novel. So um, you, your father was a publisher, your mother was a writer and actor, and you grew up in Kolkata in a particular moment in time. Can you tell us a little bit yeah. about um, your, your sort of early years and how your parents influenced you as a writer? Right. Um, she's probably talking about somebody else that I don't know. Um, <laughs> I grew up at a time in Kolkata when uh, the city uh, the, was synonymous with revolt, with rebellion, with poetry, with drama, uh, and uh, was perhaps the most cosmopolitan uh, in, its, in its outlook and thinking in all of India. Um, and I was blessed uh, by parents who were avant-garde. So I had a, a very uncharacteristic childhood. My father was uh, one of the founders of the Communist Party of India. And I, I remember him uh, being imprisoned uh, in 1962 during the, the China War uh, because uh, he was a publisher and a bookseller and he would be selling Chinese books. And so when the government of India said, well, you can't sell Chinese books, the Chinese are our enemies. I said, bought bullshit. You know? uh, and so uh, I was a little boy then, and I, and I remember the police coming to our home and taking him away. Um, my mother was uh, a very well-known writer in Bengali, uh, and uh, she wrote one of the earliest feminist tracts uh, uh, of, of the land. Uh, but she was also a stage actress. And my, my earliest memory of my parents is that they would be trudging me along to my mother's uh, uh, rehearsals, and maybe we were kids, and we would be falling asleep, my sister and I, and at the end of the rehearsals, they would trudge us back home. Um, and the house was full of books, uh, and all kinds of people came, but mostly uh, writers, poets, politicians, uh, and uh, a lot of drinking went on and arguing, arguing about all things under the earth. You know, it could be about uh, the Nouvelle Vague in France. It could be about some, uh, some obscure uh, literary tradition in Latin America. Uh, so that's the kind of world I grew up in. And I, I, never, I really didn't want to be a writer. Uh, I wanted to be an artist, and I became a failed artist. Uh, I wanted to be an actor, and I, I became a failed actor. Uh, and so the third A was all that was, you know, remaining for me, which was to be an author. Um, and uh, the rest of it, was, what, what Wendy was describing, is just a hubris of life, you know. Uh, we all have to make a living, and the living that I make uh, is as a measly professor. And your work, I mean, every one of your novels is so different. It's, you know, you, you've written a number of historical novels. One's about the opium trade. One's about a Mughal artist. There's a racial experiment on an island. And now you have Calcutta, which is this contemporary novel that follows the life of a Bihari Muslim refugee 
in the city. And um, can you can and you, you've talked about the life that you've led as you know part of the cultural intelligentsia in South Calcutta, um, and then this book has that world, but it also has the, it focuses on a very different part of um, Calcutta, a different kind of city. Can you talk about those two cities a bit? Yes. Uh, I've been promiscuous. You know, I've been uh, been going all over the place, writing about different kinds of subjects. Um, and one of the reasons for that is uh, I'm drawn to the unfamiliar. Um, it is perhaps natural for a writer uh, to write about things that are familiar to her or to him, you know, about family, uh, about uh, you know neighborhoods that they've grown up in, uh, the world uh, that they are in. And uh, but but. I'm drawn to the unfamiliar. I find the familiar very boring. I remember when my first novel was commissioned uh, uh, by Weidenfeld and Nicholson in, in the UK, uh, my editor said, Kunal, you're an Indian, aren't you? I said, of course. What else could I be? Uh, but you're right. Smell of curry. Oh, we've lost a mic here. Oh, it's yeah, back. No, it's close. Yeah. 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 You know, but your writing doesn't smell of curry. So, uh, so as you can see, uh, in, in all of our writings in different parts of India, and we were having this conversation, Wendy, I really don't think there's some, anything called Indian literature. You know, there's nothing really called Indian literature. You know, it's a it's writing stream that has come out of a nation of 1.2 billion people. So we are very divergent, very different, uh, and perhaps that's the fun. Uh, a little bit about Calcutta, uh, the novel, my most recent novel, is the fictional memoir of a gigolo in contemporary India, which is a man uh, who provides sexual services to women in exchange of money. Uh, and I've been reading passages from this book uh, since yesterday, quite a number of them. And I Can think I point I've, out, Kunal, that you tend to choose the most salacious each Yes, time, yes. Anyway. And I've given the impression of being some, some kind of a sexual deviant. You know? <laughs> <laughs> I was at the bookshop last, uh, you know, yesterday evening, and there was this lady who comes in and says, where's that gigolo book? So, yeah, so this novel really is, you know, the last few years have been years of of refugees. You know, you turn on the TV and you see refugees from Syria and Iraq. You see refugees all over the place. And I know in Australia too, you've been grappling with the issue of refugees. You know, many nations have. Uh, so this uh, novel, my, my latest novel, is also about a refugee, uh, a guy called Jamshed, uh, who uh, has smuggled in with his parents from Bangladesh to India. And he sort of comes in into uh, the huge big metropolis from, from, uh, called Calcutta. Uh, and uh, wants to really belong and become one with the city, one with the, uh, with the, with the country. Uh, the family is tired of being refugees. Most refugees are tired of being refugees. They want to belong. They want to be part of the mainstream. They don't want to be in the margins. You know, they want to be at the center. And, Mar and, and Jamshed is no exception. That's what he wants to do. Except that he falls in bad company, into bad company. You know, he fails his exams. He does things that he shouldn't be doing. Okay. Uh, and uh, he uh, finally lands a job in a massage parlor, you know. And then one thing leads to another, and he's introduced to the to the seductive, the glamorous, and the dangerous world of of prostitution, male prostitution. So that's what this novel is about. Um, I, I shall read a, a small bit, and I promise you, uh, I don't speak like this. It's just my 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 character speaking like this. It's vulgar, you know. Uh, it's very vulgar, but uh, I don't speak like this, so it's not Kunal. So you had a vision. I read you a bit from the beginning. Blood tastes bitter mixed with dirt. The night was checkered with shadows when they caught me, trapped me rather, with a call from the roadside, the call of a friend. A hand held out my favorite menthol filters. Bodies huddled on the pavement like a cricket team before the start of a match. A bus came to a screeching stop and blocked the crossing for a minute. Then it was all clear between us. That minute was what it took to make up my mind, to have a smoke with Rakib and the gang, maybe a glass of lassi afterwards, spiked with bhang. Bhang is cannabis. They will kill me one day, I thought, as I went over to the tea shop. 
If you know my friends, you should be prepared for a few jokes and more than a few bad words. They take my mother's name, ape my sister, dragging along her crippled foot, make a farting sound and cover their noses, pretending to be Abu, my father, who farted just as badly as their fathers. How did a gas bomb produce a gem like you? One of them borrowed my comb and strummed its teeth like a guitar. A menthol was slipped in between my fingers. No one asked where I was going, if I was on my way to meet a client, or if the star fucker of India had a rare night off out sniffing the poison of the streets. There are days when your friends turn into your worst enemies. Today was such a day. Later, I'd remember the few words that were spoken before the beating started. Calm reminders of facts, indisputable and honest. A punishment meted out with sincerity. Every slap, punch and chop, kicks under the belly, a rock smashed on my head. No mother's cunt or sister's cunt, mind you. No name calling. No one trying to show off and outdo others, lined up, like, lined up nicely like goody-goody boys awaiting their turn. The shop owner looked away, poured milk from one steaming pot into another to build up a froth. A loafer or two took off once they caught sight of blood. Whatever they were expecting, there was no drama from my side, going down like a goat to slaughter, repaying in full debts from a previous life. No begging for mercy to Rakib, whose father had reached his grave on my shoulders. Not to Yakub, the orphan I'd saved from agents before they could sell him off to the Gulf. Bobby, the Anglo-Indian, the one with the bad habit of losing bets and begging his money back. Friends of friends who until last night were ready to lick my ass for a chance to join my business. Under pressure, the brain works like a stopwatch, counting moments, but forgets about beginnings and ends. Whence the interval? It asks like a thirsty child or someone bursting inside his pants. Maybe they'll stop when tea is ready or after they have done what they have threatened to do before, part my jaws and cleave out my tongue with a razor. What better way to punish a rotten gigolo? Head jammed between their legs, you get to see only the ground close to your nose and know to be true what Ammi had told us long ago, that the streets of Calcutta were paved half and half with dirt and gold. Thank you, Kunal. It was wonderful. Rowana, I'd like to move to you now. So you're the author of The Permanent Resident, which has been um, celebrated for holding up a mirror to the lives of, of many different kinds of Indian-Australian experience. Can you tell us your story and, and how this book came about? Uh, yes, sure. Hi, everyone. Uh, I'd like to acknowledge the Arakwal people of the Banjalang Nation on whose land we have gathered today. Um, and as an immigrant here, I am particularly conscious of my position as a beneficiary of indigenous dispossession. Um, so I, um, because of the long process of colonization, um, I, um, English is my first language, and I love the English language, and I wanted to play with it to tell stories about people who actually uh, are very visible in Australian life, but are not visible in the Australian literary imagination. So the way we imagine Australia is very white, often very male and white, um, and yet our streets, especially in the big cities, are very diverse culturally, linguistically, you know, in terms of gender, um, age, ability, etc. And I felt that um, I couldn't see myself um, as much as uh, I could see, you know, people like me on the streets. And so I wanted to play with the English language to tell stories uh, of the multicultural reality that is Australia. And it so happens that, um, you know, the dressing I've chosen is so specific. Most of these stories are about um, Indian women uh, of Goan Catholic background from Mumbai who have moved to Australia. Um, Rowan, are you an Indian Catholic woman from um, Goa? Yes. Yes, I don't hold that against me. Mm. But yes, I grew up Catholic. I grew up outside the, you know, what is called 
so in, when we think of Indian culture, it's very much that Hindu Brahmanical patriarchal culture, I, which I don't identify with at all. And it's, I find that extremely problematic, particularly now when we have a Hindu fundamentalist government in power, we, who, you know, for them, um, cows are sacred. If you have cow meat in your freezer, you will be killed, as has happened in India in the recent past. But women, who cares? We can rape and murder them anytime, and you'll go scot-free. So I find all of that extremely problematic. And so my, you know, writing about um, women who are outside of that Indian woman norm was a way of telling uh, an alternate sto alternative story about India, while at the same time telling an alternative story about Australia. Um, I could read just a short bit to give you a tone of what I'm trying to do, which is play with the English language, but also to resist the canon, the Western canon, a little bit, and, and pay homage to um, a more diverse canon. Um, and I got into trouble for that, but I'll tell you. So this is the beginning of the book, a story called Full Face. <clears throat> I broke up with my boyfriend because he was repeatedly unfaithful to me. So I left Bombay and got myself a job as a copywriter in Dubai. I was restless there, surrounded by real gold, fake snow, and men who looked but would not leap. One day, running late for a meeting with my Uncle Joe, I rushed into Cafe Eucalypt on Sheikh Zayed Road to get my coffee. Before I knew it, I tripped over a man tying his shoelaces and heard the heave of his body insisting on an explanation. I'm so sorry, I said in the scree of that afternoon. But the second I looked at him, I was not sorry. I was light as an epiphany. His eyes were open upon me and in his gaze I saw a meadow of daffodils offering respite from a blissless solitude. Beside the lake, beneath the trees, the place, it seemed, was open to consideration. Wordsworth would not have approved, but I held my breath for the future. So this is kind of what I was trying to do um, in the whole book. Um, and one of the people I was trying to pay homage to was um, Eunice D'Souza, who was uh, my teacher at St. Xavier's College in Bombay and also Vayu's teacher. Uh, she was a giant of um, Indian um, English poetry, an amazing woman. Um, unfortunately, she passed away at 77 a few days ago. And so I just wanted to um, mention her name because she's been a huge influence to generations of um, Indian writers writing in English. Um, and so another person I was trying to pay homage to was A.K. Ramanujan, a genius of a man, a translator, a poet himself. Um, and so one of his stories that he collected from uh, an oral tradition in India uh, is about the teller in the tale. And so I used that title in one of my own stories. And when I gave it to someone to proofread, it came back with lots of red marks. It's the teller of the tale, you know, just assuming that I did, you know, Indian can't speak English, you know, we need to correct her English. So, I mean, those kinds of things happen a lot. But, um, the, the bit that I wanted to read was about, um, you know how um, in Australia there's this myth of the classless Australia? Uh, <laughs> there's also this myth of uh, uh, the homogenous immigrant group. But as you all know, um, and the Anglo-Celtic diaspora is also an immigrant group, I have to say, um, there are classes within immigrant groups as well. And so one of the things in, in this particular story that I'm going to read called The Skit, it's a story about telling a story, um, is about a group of Indian students who've been invited to, a, to the home of a rich Indian couple. Um, and um, they are, uh, they've gathered together on a, uh, on a November night in Sydney. Rosalind and Paul are the characters who are the, the rich couple at whose house this dinner is uh, taking place. Um, and Lynette is one of the Indian students who've gathered there. And Lynette, who's doing an MBA at a university in Sydney, 
has written a skit. She's not a writer, but she thought she'd have a go, and she's written something. She wants to read it out. Um, and everyone's, you know, really interested in this skit because they're not writers; they're just, um, you know, aspirational Indians, um, and they're all doing MBAs, etc. So most of the Bombay gang were still on student visas, still drinking out of secondhand glasses from Vinnie's and eating off melamine plates while waiting and waiting for their applications for permanent residency to be processed. Lynette was one of them. She was Paul's neighbor from Bombay, now enrolled in an MBA at a university in Sydney. Paul and Rosalind were the lucky ones. They came to Sydney not as students, but on a secondment from Paul's multinational accounting firm. It was Rosalind who convinced Paul that they should stay on, become Australian citizens, because it thrilled her to be anonymous yet striking in the undulating uniformity of Sydney's affluent Lower North Shore. In the background, Elvis was booming through Paul's new Bose speakers. You ain't nothing but a hound dog. Lisbeth, an accounting student, had just stood up stretched out his arms towards Lynette, about to ask her to jive. But when he heard Sushma's announcement, he retracted his arms and sat down again. Oh, said Paul, turning around. A skit? You've written a skit? You mean like a play? Didn't know we had a Salman Rushdie in Sydney? Salman Rushdie doesn't write plays, said Sanjay, another accounting student. Novels, he writes. Same thing, yeah, for any kind of writing, writing, you have to have a good command of the language, said Paul. I always say, if you have the Queen's English, you have everything, said Rosalind. If you can write novels, you can write plays, said Paul. Salman Rushdie, if he tries to write plays, again he will make <coughs> millions, again he will get a fatwa, again he will marry a model. But Polly, do you really think novels are the same as skits? Come on, let's hear it, said Sushma. She's written it. Let's hear it. Lynette opened the embroidered cloth folder and lifted a few handwritten sheets of paper into the white light. Lisbeth turned down the volume and turned on the yellow house lights. Lynette nodded ever so slightly without taking her eyes off her script. She began to read. It was a dark November night. Suddenly, Rosalind stood up. Lynette stopped reading. Rosalind said, one sec, Lynette, I'll draw the curtains. When she was done, she sat down again and flicked her hand, indicating that Lynette could continue. So Lynette started again. This was the first time she had ever read her writing aloud to anyone, let alone to a whole group of people. She faltered at the start, her tongue tripping on the opening lines of dialogue, but soon she took the silence in the room for interest and was encouraged. The story was an amalgamation of many stories in the newspapers that year. A girl comes to Sydney on a student visa, attends a private college and studies hairdressing. Like many others before her, she has been promised permanent residency in Australia, or PR, by her migration agent, by her private college, and by the man who stamped her visa. The fees are more than what was advertised in the brochure. When she complains to the student welfare officer, he is very sympathetic. He invites her to his house, and after a glass of Riesling, begins to kiss her. Initially, she resists like the good woman of Hindi films and convent schools, but he is cute and keen and accurate. She succumbs to the callings of her own body and his. In the throes of passion, however, he says, call me Mountbatten. Then, eyes closed, he breathlessly proceeds to call her a stinking curry mancha cunt. She is stunned. She runs away immediately and decides to lodge a complaint of sexual assault and racism through the local courts. He contests the allegations and playing on the latest crit cricket match-fixing scandals between India and Australia, he counter-alleges that she was attempting to buy him with sex. The story climaxes with a dramatic courtroom scene and ends with the girl being deported and the student welfare officer getting off scot-free. Lynette finished reading. There were brand new crystal glasses on the coffee table in front of Lynette. The light from the floor lamp made them glow like compliments. She asked, so, was it okay? There was silence. Then Rosalind said, oh my, that was, that was God. You poor thing, 
Why didn't you tell us you were going through all this? <laughs> Lynette had imagined all kinds of feedback. For weeks, she had practiced witty comebacks to questions about the dialogue, the sex scene in the story, the decision to reflect India through the broken mirrors of diasporic memory. But the assumption that the skit was autobiographical took her by surprise. Um, no, no, I didn't go through any of this. Again, a silence full of pity and a collective Catholic ache to be helpful. Really, nothing like this happened to me seriously. You mean to say you made it all up? It's what's it called, fiction or something? Yes, yeah, she said. So it's not true then. Rosalind got up and pulled the curtains back. No. Sushma's eyes were red from the tears she was shedding freely. Such a beautiful story. You are so brave. I mean, the girl is so brave. Poor thing. Lisbeth said. Forget your MBA. You should take up writing. See JK rolling? She's rolling in cash. What will your MBA give you? Nothing compared to that. Polly, who had not even taken one sip of his whiskey, said, Lynette, Lynette, who would have thought the little two-year-old girl I saw running around in her panties in Barfiwala building in Baikala would one day write plays like Salman Rushdie? <laughs> Thank you, Rowana. Thank you. <laughs> now, I'm, I'm sorry to say that because we've got such wonderful panellists and four of them that we've actually run out of time so we won't be able to do audience questions but I strongly, if you have questions that you would like to ask of our panellists um, please do follow us to the bookshop where you'll be able to ask them one-on-one -on -one. I'd like you all to thank our wonderful panellists today it's been such a great session, thank you Thank you for coming And thank you Wendy for being a fabulous chair Thank you Rowan I hope you've enjoyed listening to this podcast. This session was recorded live as part of Byron Writers Festival 2017. You can find other recorded talks and discussions from the festival on our website, byronwritersfestival.com.